interesting um, to consider the time frame of Jesus going to through trial, being put in the tomb one day, and then the time frame from that to what we're talking about is is the church and the establishment on the church in the day of Pentecost. For those and, of us who can't read that, could you read that? Okay, <laughs> is my writing that bad or is it no, at the I angle? Understood. <laughs> okay, so three twenty nine and, and these are this is kind of loose. I mean, you don't really know exactly what days things happen. But three twenty nine, the triumphal entry, um, four three, the trial, crucifixion and the and then the tomb of um, into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Um, four four the Sabbath of Passover week, so Saturday, and then Easter, the resurrection. And then scoot in from, this is 50 days until the day of Pentecost, the, the Feast of Weeks. Um, and during this time, there were about 120 people that were still gathering. We read that in, in the first chapter of Acts. Um, and then Peter gets up in front of the people of Jerusalem and he says, hey, y'all killed him. So the interesting thing is that... Um, there were people in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks. Lots of people. Um, this is the second, kind of the second of the of the of the type of feasts that people would come to Jerusalem for routinely on a yearly basis. And so people were there, and they'd been exposed to Jesus. And you know that on this day when he was crucified, there's some supernatural things that had happened. And I think that there were lots of supernatural things that continued to happen during this period of time, such so as Jesus appearing. Uh, but on the on the day of the crucifixion, the temple to, uh, temple curtain was torn in two, there were earthquakes, people apparently were raised from the dead. So lots of supernatural things that people are thinking, hey, what's going on here? This is this is crazy. So it makes sense that when he offers the invitation that people came. Uh, and how did they baptize three thousand people? Well what apparently one at a time. <laughs> there wasn't just one baptistry in the city of Jerusalem. Apparently, ceremonial clean, cleansings were were happening all the time. Uh, and there were baptistries or baptismal fonts all over the city. So, at Caiaphas's house, right outside the the temple, there's seven mikvahs. Seven mikvahs for washing. Well, baptismal mikvahs. Jewish mikvahs, they did, they believed in ceremonial washings so much so that he had seven different ones at his house. They probably didn't use those that day. <laughs> probably not. But, yeah, thank you for setting that up. So that is, it's helpful to have some context, especially since our minds are focused here today um, in terms of where we are in our calendar, and yet... We're here today in terms of where we are in our class calendar. And so I want to try to connect this, the emergence of the church with this story that Jason just kind of rehearsed for us a little bit. Um, but then also expand it to think about how the spirit is involved as well. So um, I don't know if we have any visitors. Eric suggested that we give a little bit of context for what we're doing in case we do have visitors. Um, so... I. What we've been doing in this class, of course, as um, most of you know, is looking at the kind of logic of the Apostles' Creed, what we're calling the dramatic logic of orthodoxy, and the dramatic piece of that being that this is uh, an unfolding drama kind of 
interaction between God and humanity. It's not just a static principle, but it's something more like a story, an ongoing interaction. And so we're taking uh, piece by piece of the creed and unpacking the theology and the history and sort of what's going on behind it. So where we are at present in the Apostles' Creed is we, we just covered, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. So now we're to the point where we're saying, I also believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. So there's two terms there we need to unpack right away. Um, first of all, remember that Catholic means universal. This is little c Catholic, not Roman Catholic. So we're saying we believe in the church that is universal. And second, uh, we believe in the communion of saints. This doesn't mean people who are perfected, to whom we pray. Again, let's separate this from kind of Roman Catholic orthodoxy. Um, when we say saints, we're using this in the, ter- the New Testament terminology. The word hagios refers to people who are devoted to God, not people who have reached perfection. So that's a helpful distinction, I think. And then I think this is also kind of interesting. In Latin, the phrase, um, the communion of saints, that we translate that way, is communion sanctorum, which can also mean not just holy persons, but holy things. So what's interesting there is this phrase for the people who were originally speaking it in uh, the West, uh, that evoked for them the sense of um, the holy people with whom I commune, but also the holy things that we share with each other. So that includes our spiritual gifting, uh, the sacraments, our confessions of faith. So this is a communion where we actually share, we have everything in common. I think that's kind of a rich concept. Okay, so the historical context, remember that uh, the creed arose around, um, it, we're not really sure, but we know it was in use by the third century. Um, so it might have been earlier than that. It likely was earlier than that, that it came about. But by the late second century, we have some major uh, church theologians who are putting a lot of emphasis on the importance of church membership, of being a part of the church. So you have Irenaeus of Lyon, who is saying that the church is a living, universal body within which the proper interpretation of Scripture is kept alive. So you can't understand Scripture outside of the church. So if, you know, the Holy Scriptures by that point were still very much considered to be what we call the Old Testament. And he was telling people, you can't really understand these unless you're a part of a church body. That's, That's an early on a really emphatic point. A little bit later, uh, in 251, Cyprian of Carthage, and this we know this is around the time the creed was in use, was arguing that uh, salvation is only possible as uh, channeled through the church. So you don't get to have uh, what he says, this is his statement, anyone who leaves Christ's church cannot benefit from the rewards of Christ. So they very much thought about church in terms of um, actual communion with Christ himself. And that happens by way of the sacraments, baptism and Eucharist. So um, they have a very, what we call, high view of the church. Now that's changed a lot. Uh, a lot of Christians now in the modern West think of church as some, something that is kind of optional. And uh, I think the fact that you all are here right now means you probably don't have that mindset so much. Um, and yet, we know, we're very aware of the fact that Easter Sunday, Christmas, these are times... Uh, when more people tend to go to church, tend to show up on Sundays. Um, And that says something, I think, about our heritage and the way that 
the importance of this kind of communion, these kind of rhythms are kind of deeply written into our sense of who we are. Um, so I actually think, um, well, and we can attend to that later about what, what's going on with the fact that people see church as optional. When at this point in history, that wasn't the case. Yeah. There was a poll in the last couple of days, paper said over the last 20 years in the U.S., the percent of people who said they identified with a church was in the 70s, maybe mid-70s, and today it's less than 50%. And that was then? Over the last 20 years. Wow. Yeah, that's the, Hilton's talking about the, the phenomenon that's called the rise of the nuns, people who check none on religious affiliation. Yeah, and that's a pretty remarkable shift in just 20 years. So yeah, we'll talk about that a bit. Um, but let's let's back up for a moment and think about um, how this part of the creed makes sense to come after we have already affirmed, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son, and I believe in the Spirit. So one thing that you've heard me say, if you've uh, come to this class, if you were here last semester in particular, is that um, what we have in the life of Christ connected with his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation, his ascendance to heaven, um, and the outpouring of the Spirit. That's one kind of seamless event. You could think of it that way. Um, We tend to chop those things up sometimes when thinking about their importance. But what's really, I think, key is if we think of those all as causally linked um, and moving towards uh, this kind of culmination with Pentecost and the creation of the church. So think about it that way, that all of these things belong together in in one kind of single event. So what we have in the resurrection is the affirmation that Christ's life and death defeat the powers of sin, evil, and death. And then with the ascension, we have the declaration that Christ uh, is, is now set over all the rulers and powers of this world. So this is his exaltation. We live in a world where Christ is king. And we, we've only, you know, this is a mysterious sort of moment in the story. We don't understand a lot of it, but we do understand that implication. We also understand that there is something important that happens with his glorified humanity. So this is a fully human person, fully divine, fully human, who is taken up into, fully into the life of God. And at that On that occasion, now the Spirit can come. So now uh, the Spirit can be poured out on all people. So something has happened, something new is happening. Now we don't need the temple in Jerusalem. Now God can be known intimately. Okay, so let's think about what happens at this point in the story. I'm looking at Acts 2, and I'll read uh, verses 16 through 18, and then skip to verse 21. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what's key here 
is that the ascent of the Son in his full humanity has initiated this, the last days, marked by the outpouring of the Spirit upon all people. And this Spirit who is poured out is promised to all those who are baptized in the name of Jesus. That's in Acts 2.38. So what we have here at Pentecost is the Holy Spirit bringing the church to birth. Um, This is a baptized people, immersed in water and spirit, and it is universal. It is no longer uh, only Israel that is invited into this intimacy with God. Now it is poured out upon all people. And there's no, we see this, uh, this removal of certain hierarchies that have been in place. Uh, Male-female divides, uh, slave and free, these things are being eradicated by the outpouring of the Spirit. So we can see here that um, there's this new creation. Uh, so what we've had is Israel is now being um, expanded into what, what we call in the, the Greek term there is ekklesia. Uh, which translates into assembly or congregation of people. This is the new communal reality instituted by God's grace and God's call. So the question we have that we're going to kind of dig into is what is the nature of the ecclesia, of the, the new community? So according to the Apostles' Creed, um, it has three characteristics. It is holy, it is universal, and we could say it is communal. So the, the communion of holy people and things is uh, emphasizing that it is communal. I, I like here we have uh, the Holy Spirit's voice coming through here. <laughs> Acts 2. Okay, so let's take these terms uh, in turn. Let's start with holy. Um, what we want to remember when we say that the church is holy is this does not mean morally perfect. It means distinctive. It means set apart, not because we're better than anyone else, because we certainly are not. In fact, the church many times looks too much like the world. Um, But that also reminds us of our brokenness in important ways. Uh, So it means that we are distinctive by virtue of our commitments, our commitments to each other, our commitments to worship, and our commitments to mission. And, that real, and something distinctive really does emerge from that. Something, a kind of unique cultural setting, we might say. And it's a unique relational setting in terms of our, our connection to God. Okay, so what we have um, is this affirmation in Scripture that we, in fact, as the church, are the new temple. We're the new temple of God. So for each of these, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put forth what I might call a kind of thesis for who we are. So as holy, I would say we are the new temple. Um, As Catholic or universal, we are the new Israel. And as communal, we are Christ's body on earth. So those are the three concepts I'm going to work with. So let's start with the idea that as the church, we are the new temple. Okay, so this is a, a new reality. Now we don't have, again, we don't have to travel to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, now we can gather together here and commune with the same God that, the, that Israel was communing with uh, by way of the temple and that, and that style of worship. Okay, so God has come to dwell among us. 
This is fulfilling ancient promises. So if you're interested in looking at these, you can find them in Leviticus 26, Jeremiah 32, and Ezekiel 37. In each of these instances, God says, uh, there's this word from God that is promising, I will live with them. I will walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And what we find in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, is Paul claiming that this promise has been fulfilled. He says, for we are the temple of the living God, and he's quoting these passages. So he's uh, directly quoting from the Old Testament. We are the temple of the living God. Now God lives among us, is close to us. We are his people. God walks among us. And you see here, you can hear a kind of echo of Eden there, right? In Eden, God walked with Adam and Eve. And then we lost that intimacy with God because of what's been restored through Christ. Now we have this access to this intimacy again. So what's important is to remember that uh, this has an eschatological character. Now that's a fancy term that simply means um, it's not complete. It's looking forward to the end. Eschaton is the end. And so that's God's future, so to speak. So when theologians say things like that, Uh, They usually unpack them in certain ways. And the thing that a lot of you probably heard is that means it has a now and not yet character. So what is now about this is that um, we do have this intimacy with God. As Paul says, uh, we are the temple of the living God. The not yet piece of it is that it hasn't been fully, you know, kind of uh, fully arrived. The kingdom has not fully arrived. We don't fully dwell with God. Um, The whole Christ event, what we find in Christ's life, death, resurrection, all of that in some sense belongs to God's future because this belongs to the time when we all will be like Christ, when we all will have this kind of intimacy with God that Christ has. That's what we're promised. He became man so that we may become like him. So what we find is that uh, there's this sense in which the Spirit's outpouring is the initial harvest of that work the initial harvest of the Christ event, a kind of down payment of our future dwelling with God in a new heavens and new earth. So uh, this is the not yetness of it, is that it's not completed. It, it helps us look to the future. It makes sense of the fact that we still sin, that we still are not perfect, even though we commune with God, even though we are giving gifting by the Spirit. So this is why Paul says in Romans 8.23, Um, quote, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So um, what's important there is that we have to remember that the church is not the kingdom. Church is not the kingdom. We can't make any pretense of being God's kingdom. What the church is, as the people of the Spirit, as the new temple, is... uh, what we can offer the world is a sign and a first fruit of what is to come. So that's, that's the best we have. We don't have perfection to offer. We do have a kind of a site of reference to what is to come. So as the new temple, the church is the site of reconciliation with God and humanity. Uh, that means it's the site of worship. It means it's also the site where we reconcile with one another. We reconcile our differences. Uh, The Spirit enables us to live by the rules of God's future world, even as we are continuing to live within the present one. 
Uh, this means that it's also the site of sanctification. This is where we grow. Uh, we, we share exploration of God's word. We share in our worship with one another. And we also, in sharing life with, with one another, have to learn how to grow through suffering. Um, and costly, ongoing relationship with one another. It is only through such ongoing commitment that we can grow in our capacity for kindness, for peace, for love, and joy. And I think that's one of the things that is lost when people say that church doesn't matter, that they can just virtually listen to it, you know, they're going to listen online to a sermon or they're going to um, do Twitter church. Uh, What's lost in that is they're not having to show up and have the messiness of human relationships and to to figure out what it means to submit to one another, to live uh, in such a way that actually calls me out of myself and expands who I am in some sense uh, by virtue of of interaction with my brothers and sisters. Okay, so that's how I... I see this affirmation that the church is holy? Is there any comment on that or question, point for clarification? Yeah, David? You said something that at first really struck me and then I started thinking about it. And you, said, uh, you said that walking with God and how we can look at how that was redeemed. There's a few passages though in, in, in the Old Testament where it refers to people who walked with God. Enoch, the way Noah. Is that a callback to the garden as well? Yeah. And is it putting that Enoch and, and Noah on the same, like they were righteous, even to the point of, even though the sin was into the world, they were almost in a relationship as Adam and Eve had with God? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'm trying to give a short way to answer that. As I understand it, as I understand the, the theology that, that goes with the Old Testament, and Randall could probably help me with it. Um, is what we have is something like after after we lose our relationship with God in Eden, after we lose the Edenic state and uh, are cast out, then God is always pursuing humanity to reestablish that relationship. So um, there are certain people that seem to be virtuous enough in some sense to have almost something like that same inti- intimacy with God. But God's will for us is to live that out communally rather than just individually. And so it's not enough for it to be Noah or Enoch or whoever it is, right? That he, uh, that God is always calling a people into this. And so that's why there's the pursuit of humanity to the point of creating this covenant people through Abraham and his family and then bringing Christ about through that lineage and for the sake of the outpouring of the Spirit upon all of us. Does that make sense? Yeah. Any others? So you mentioned the church is not the kingdom, which we've got portions of our brotherhood or opposite. It has to be exactly the same. Mm. But do you see any sense in which they overlap or one morphs into the other or transforms yeah. gradually? Or? I, I think the way in which the church is connected with the kingdom is that uh, we anticipate it. So we... We know something about what it's going to look like because we have the scriptures and we have uh, our life together wherein we might, you might say that we have glimpses of the kingdom. So, but it's always, we have to remember, I think, in our, as we describe ourselves to outsiders, for example, that we not 
sound as if we have arrived uh, because people will be disappointed when they join us, right? Um, but, but, but at the same time, I think you can boldly say, like in Ephesians 1, we're called the body of Christ. Yes. If you're, if you're in the body of Christ, what else are you except you're, you're part of Him and subject to Him? That's right. He's called the head of the body. Mm -hmm. So a king is head of the kingdom. So it's, it's, it's back to that now and not yet. It's That's not right. the perfect... Uh, implementation of what we'll see ultimately, but yeah, I think we are in the kingdom. If you're, if you're willing to say, I'm giving my life to Jesus, I'm in his body, he's the head of the body, what else is there? I mean, you know, you, yeah. I think you're splitting hairs by saying it's, it's just understanding it's not the perfect thing we'll see when every knee shall, right. shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Yeah, yeah. And the ultimate implementation of it. Yeah, but you know what's interesting is what you're articulating there is the vision of church that that is what I might call more realistic. But um, what I think a lot of people have been, I'm not sure if it's what they they feel deceived when they join church and it's not perfect. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. because perhaps they have a more idealistic yeah. idea of what this should be. Yeah. So um, I think it's really important to say the church is not the kingdom because the kingdom will be the perfected union of humanity and divinity. Um, but until then, this is, this is what, what we have. We have the gift of the church, which is Christ's body on earth, by virtue of its link to Christ and all these various means that we have. And for those of us who are committed to this, we see it as transformative. We see the church as a, as a place where we are transformed. But um, you have to be a part of it for a while to really get that. And a lot of people get disillusioned pretty quickly when it's not exactly what they had hoped. But I, think, I do think we kid ourselves when we think that people don't look at the church and say, that's not a perfect... I mean, I, I remember a conversation I had with AJ about... I can see a spark in AJ's eye when she talks about Jesus. And I asked her point blank, why do you not have faith in that? And she said to me, because the blind do not see that believe all those Isaiah prophecies all those messianic prophecies have not been fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And that's the kingdom come. Right. Even in the nation of Israel, as they're preparing to go into the promised land, God says, now, I'm going to give you this, but it's not because you're perfect. Right. You're a stubborn people. You rebelled with the golden calf. I'm giving it to you because of the wickedness of the people who are there. Yeah, yeah that's right. That We need to remember that as the church, we are the new Israel. And that doesn't just mean we've replaced Israel, um, which is how we sometimes tend to talk about it. It means that we have been uh, brought into this. Uh, it means that Israel's story is our story, right? And that we are Israel in these respects as well. That oftentimes what Israel did was they chose the way of the nations, and that's what we do as well. And so it's not about, it was never about Israel's righteousness, and it's not about ours either. Um, we've been given this gift of grace, uh, the extension of the the invitation to be God's people because of who God is, not because of who we are. So that's a that helps us segue into the idea of uh, the church being universal or Catholic, uh, universal across time and space. So I think we do we can connect this helpfully with the notion of us our identity being that of the new Israel. Um, we are an Exodus people a people called by God for a special task, 
set on a pilgrimage toward a new homeland. Uh, Just as Israel was to serve the nations uh, as a light of God's kingdom, an alternative to the way of the nations to draw them to Yahweh, uh, we are to do that same sort of work. Israel chose the way of the nations, so Jesus came as the true light among the nations. Um, He has done this work for us. Now we receive the benefits of that work. But one thing this emphasizes is that this is global. The reach is global. It's not about us withdrawing and just encouraging one another. Rather, this is about renewing all of the earth, renewing every nation, every person is worthy of uh, invitation to this relationship with God. So um, we can think of this in terms of our shared baptism, I think. If we think about our baptism in terms of following Christ into the water, we think about what his baptism signaled. Um, Jesus was given the spirit in some sense at the foundation of his ministry, which was at his baptism. In the same way, um, when we follow Christ into those waters, we are given the spirit as empowerment for our ministry. So our ministry is Christ's ministry. And it is for everyone. So uh, if we think about how Christ's ministry brings to focus what the Spirit's work is, what our work is, uh, we think about that in terms of um, the healing ministry that he performed and the proclamation that God's kingdom is near. Um, so I'll, I'll say a bit more about that, but I think that segues nicely into the fact that there is a, a very much a communal element to this life. So that segues into uh, the communion of saints. Um, as filled with the Spirit, we are promised in Romans that we're, um, we're given the life of sonship. The Spirit accomplishes this in individual people, but also in collective bodies, that the body as a whole reflects Christ in a way that the individual does not. So that's, that's what we're told in Scripture. Uh, The church is Christ's body on earth, with Christ as its head. And um, what we can think of here is that Jesus formed a community of disciples to fulfill the work of God. So there's that puzzling passage in Scripture that you will do even greater things than these. What does that mean we're going to be better than Jesus? Probably not. Uh, What I think we can hear him saying there is that you're going to expand this work. You're going to do even more than this. You're going to keep... uh, you're going to pick up where I left off and continue this work. So that is what we are to be doing as a community. And when we think about it, we are to do, we're following in his footsteps. We are proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God has come near. We are, um, and we're behaving in the ways that uh, people behave when the kingdom of God is near. Uh, We heal brokenness. We feed the hungry. Again, we reconcile people groups, and uh, we proclaim the good news of the kingdom. But we should do this, and and a lot you'll hear how these themes kind of overlap here. Um, We should do this mindful of the fact that we are not yet perfect. And this is an interesting passage from Augustine, who's a fourth century theologian. Um, He says, and he he very much believed this, that the church is what he calls a mixed body. Some are righteous, and some are unrighteous. And some of us, I would, say, I would probably add, are kind of in between, most of us maybe. Um, the unrighteous may share in the baptism of the righteous, 
And he says this, they do not, however, share a common charity. And many who seem to be outside are actually within, just as many who seem to be within are in reality outside. Kind of an interesting thought. And he was really working out the idea. Someone had asked him to explain the idea of how Christ's body could be this unblemished bride. And he was saying, well, it might be that uh, we'll be surprised on Judgment Day who's actually in the church and who's not. So I thought that was interesting. So I think two really important affirmations for us to hold in mind when we're thinking about uh, our communion, communion with one another. Um, and these, I think, kind of we should hold intention in some sense because one of them is inward looking and the other is outward looking. The first is that uh, the church as communion uh, is a, a sort of inward looking thing in the sense that uh, we encourage one another, we build one another up in love by uh, studying God's word, by receiving the sacraments, by sharing in prayer, and in sharing in life together. In all these things, we are formed, and we imperfectly participate in God's love. But also, the church is outward-looking. The church has mission. There's some sense in which we are defined by our mission. And this is uh, by our various ministries of witness and compassion, our servant work for justice and peace in the world. Uh, The church imperfectly participates in God's own mission. So uh, I have two quotes to share with you. Um, First of all, kind of returning to the idea that the problem that a lot of people have in our culture is with the notion of the church uh, as being necessary in some sense. I think that's largely because we value independence so much over interdependence. And that leads, I I think, and I'm not alone in this, I'm inspired by people I've read in saying this, Um, This leads us to something like a kind of self-centered piety, oftentimes. And so we don't think about our faith as being bound up in the life of others. We think about it as something that I build for myself. It's me and Jesus. And you hear that a lot, even in, I would think, a lot of our hymns that we sing. It's a lot about I, I, me. Um, When I, I wish we had more about we, who we are, because our lives are inextricably bound up in one another. Um, so rather than seeing the church as optional, I think we should see it as something that is um, core to who we are, not because if you don't go to church, you're going to hell. Um, it's more about I can't know Christ fully unless I'm doing that work alongside other people, unless I'm uh, growing in my relationship with others. So N.T. Wright has this quote that I think is really, it's, it's pretty nice. Um, He says, he's thinking about the idea that for so many people, church carries this kind of, these overtones of false piety and hypocrisy. He says, uh, but for many, church means just the opposite of that negative image. It's a place of welcome and laughter, of healing and hope, of friends and family and justice and new life. No church is like this all the time, but a remarkable number of churches are partly like that for quite a lot of the time. And then um, another theologian named uh, John V. Taylor says, Our theology would improve if we thought more of the church being given to the Spirit than of the Spirit being given to the church. Okay, so um, we have one minute, unfortunately. (laughs) 
Any comment, question, clarification? Yeah. Just uh, one thought about now, but not yet. Uh, one of the scriptures we read said we await our documents and mm -hmm. ours. So, I know, the song that keeps going over and over my head when we were speaking was, we are the same, we are the mm -hmm. God, and it's like, okay, we are, but we're not. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, again, there's a sort of tension there that we have to hold. It's that we are already experiencing this as a kind of down payment, but we're going to get the full payment later. We're going to get the full inheritance is a, a way of thinking of that. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Anyone else? There's a similar quote that the church doesn't have a mission, but the mission has a church. Mm. That yeah, that's good. Yes, last one. I just, I think back to Josh and Simmons have been saying, Part of the church where we can be mutually edified and taught and nourished and nourished and nurtured. It's like Satan has us often in front of ourselves where he can deceive us or we can do something else. And then he divides us from everybody else. Yeah. And then he can destroy us. That's right. Amen. Thank you. Thank you,